Happy Holidays from the DSR Network. We are deeply appreciative of our members and the year that we've had. To celebrate the holiday season, we are offering a 50% discount on either your first month or first year of membership. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the members-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of December, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month or for the first year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRHOLIDAY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRHOLIDAY. Thank you very much for your support. Happy holidays from all of us at the DSR Network. As we all spend the holidays with our families, we're bringing you some of the best episodes from the network on some of the biggest events of the year. We hope you enjoy this look back at 2023, and please look forward to another year of Deep State Radio. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. We've got the votes and screw the rest of you. And Dr. Kavita Patel. These might be some of the smaller moments, you know, with all the bombshells. Didn't catch people's eyes. Hello and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into yet again another election cycle. And Norm, it would be uh, completely, I, I, I think that when you and I were planning today's podcast, we were trying to put words into how we could kind of really productively, I would say, and usefully, uh, or at least for myself, try to describe uh, a, ser- a series of conversations on this podcast around what's unfolding in Israel, the Gaza Strip, and actually beyond, just because mm-hmm. I, I have friends in Lebanon who have been encouraged to evacuate. And, and clearly, it's it's now a regional crisis far beyond just the Gaza Strip, the Israel and Palestine. So I think that uh, we what we landed on, which I'm, I'm hopeful, Norm, that you're uh, can, you know, kind of align with on is we really do need to have a more uh, informed discussion. You and I are both informed, but not informed enough, probably, because I just, I never really, yeah. I never um, really spent a lot of time, um, not only in the Middle East, but I have not spent a lot of time thinking about kind of the dynamics that are unfolding in the region, other than I had actually watched the Meet the Press with uh, Jake Sullivan, and it was probably about four, three, four weeks ago now where they did talk about Middle East and stability, largely because of some progress made with Saudi Arabia and other countries and citing Israel as well. And I and I think that was probably my last kind of touch, which was very brief. And so I, I think if we can, we're going to invite one of our uh, kind of the, the OG of, of him all, David Rothkopf. But Norm, I, I, I think I'll just pause and say, that it's hard to even form words to describe. Like I've, I've in some ways had to struggle with just turning off all media and being in denial because it's too, not just horrifying. It's too much for like one human brain to kind of unpack. And so I just want to say that for listeners, we're going to try to focus today on something Norman, I can talk about at length and offer some insights around the lack of a speaker in the house and then in our members only section, we're going to touch on 
at least something that's a little bit more kind of, um, I would say like where we're both Norm and, and myself are watching and learning more about what's unfolded in the hospital in Gaza and how that that's become a lot of a flashpoint for the larger topic. But Norm, just go ahead and unpack your thoughts and feelings and Hopefully you are okay with the idea that we're going to try to recruit uh, David Rothkopf to join our conversation, really to teach me and you a little bit more, because I know that this is close to not just what he's spent his time on during his time in government, but he's been thoughtfully writing about this in the Daily Beast um, pretty regularly, and I encourage any listeners to read his his columns in that forum. Norm? I agree, Kavita, that... uh you know, at this point, we need to have somebody who's been inside uh, and who knows the region very well. Uh, you know, we hear all kinds of experts on TV and read stuff. Tom Friedman's really been on fire uh, of late with very pointed and, and good columns. Uh, but it's such a, there's no good answer here. Um, and the degree to which this inflames people right now and will continue to. I was just, uh, I'm still shaken by the story of the six-year-old boy stabbed to death. Uh, by in Illinois, I know. In Illinois. And you, you know, you realize uh, there's, some, you know, just to tie this in a different way, Jeffrey Tubin has a piece in the Times today um, about Trump inciting people to violence. And to some degree, uh, Tubin is reflecting on his new book, which is really a powerful book, which is about uh, McVeigh and uh, Oklahoma City and the roots of uh, domestic uh, white supremacist terrorism, um, and how Timothy McVeigh was just set off by uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, and uh, the assault weapons ban and, uh, you know, what the FBI uh, had done and had the idea of, uh, of bombing had come from a, a novel, uh, uh, basically a, sort of a white supremacist terrorist novel, uh, but about how words have consequences and how the words are triggered uh, often by talk radio and others who are exploiting this process. And you think about what happened to this little boy in Illinois, where it was triggered by right-wing talk radio and reckless language that's used. And you think about the violence that can be perpetrated now against Muslims and against Jews uh, here and abroad. And uh, all of that is a sideshow in a sense to the potential consequences of a conflagration in the Middle East that could spread more widely than what we have now. And of course, part of what uh, President Biden's visit uh, that was cut short, uh, so the uh, part of his trip that was supposed to go to Jordan to meet with King Abdullah and Sisi and um, uh, Abbas um, was to pull people together to try to make sure that this didn't move into a wider war with Iran and uh, uh, Hezbollah involved. Um, all of that is the big issue. But 
you know, it's not inconsequential that these ages old uh, animosities uh, now flare up and, uh, you know, can create an even bigger uh, division and more violence in our society as well as so many others. And I think make it, it, so we will shift to what feels like the never ending search for a house speaker. And I think you called it here on this podcast that you didn't, we were, I think you were trying to put not a bet per se, because I don't think you and I are the betting types, but at least some sort of kind of uh, guesstimate on how long Kevin McCarthy would last. And I think you nailed it. I think you kind of said like, yeah, this guy is not for long. Um, I'm not sure we could have predicted it to the date of, of all of uh, the ongoings with the with the uh, budget. But I do think that you and I knew this day were, was coming. So, but it actually is related. So maybe Norm, so that we can shift to this. Why is it so important as we're taping this podcast? And by the time listeners pick it up, we'll they will likely have heard an address from President Biden to the nation where he is going to directly kind of put out his plea for both aid to Israel, some dedication of, I believe, about $100 million in humanitarian aid that will be designated for, for like Palestinian relief and some, I think, kind of roughly speaking, like in the Gaza Strip, and and then uh, an aid package for Israel, an aid package for the Ukrainian war, which is also months overdue. Speak a bit, Norm, if we can how this all comes back to you pointed out kind of like the role of media and you and I have talked for months now on the themes that, you know, the MAGA right is dictating not just the direction of the Republican party, but the direction of the country and evermore it's present by the lack of a speaker speak to how that's connected. And um, Norm, where do we go from here? I mean, Scalise can't get it. Jordan can't get it. They're talking about adding some temporary powers to Patrick McHenry, which I don't even understand. I used to work in, in Congress. What's happening here and what's at stake? Well, you know, without a house uh, at this point, precisely for the reasons that you've suggested, Kavita, uh, two things loom. One is uh, the aid that we have allocated to Ukraine is going to run out very soon. and. We obviously, the president has pledged an emergency aid package to Israel. There's, you know, stuff in the pipeline, but that's not going to last. And we do not get the appropriations without uh, a house in session. Not only that, what triggered McCarthy's removal in the end was uh, that he engineered this 45-day punt on the government shutting down uh, when the fiscal year started, October 1, uh, when that runs out, um, we have a shutdown. And that shutdown is going to reverberate in so many ways. And to have a shutdown, which will include a significant number of the civilian employees at the Pentagon, as well as many other places, given where the world is, has grave consequences for our national security. Not to mention, of course, that Tommy Tuberville, uh, the evil uh, uh, football coach turned uh, illegitimate senator from Alabama, since he basically lives in Florida, um, you know, continues to hold up uh, vital uh, uh, leadership roles in uh, our national security uh, realm. Um, 
I will say, just as an aside, the Senate was off last week. Um, why Chuck Schumer didn't bring the Senate back and demand immediate votes on Jack Lew as ambassador to Israel? And we also have no ambassadors in Kuwait and other countries in the Middle East at the worst possible time and demand votes on the chief of naval operations and the other key positions and let the Republicans get behind Tuberville instead of behind American national security. Uh, it just boggles the mind. I was going to ask you about that. What was I still can't talk to a single staffer on the Senate side. Who can explain what that strategy was about? Not one, because not putting in, and I worked with Jack Lou, like, talk about ever a time when we needed an ambassador to Israel, for the love of God. But well, who better to have than a former chief of staff, treasury? Like, I mean, how many ways can we talk about how Jack Lou would be helpful? What was that? Truly, Norm, none of us understand what Schumer's strategy, and this is a man who is built on strategy, usually around promoting himself. What was the strategy there? I can't think of one. Uh, the only possible explanation is that Chuck Schumer got to this position by catering to the needs and desires of all of his colleagues. That's how he vaulted over uh, Dick Durbin, who was the next line at the time, and that his colleagues had plans for the week, and he didn't want to disrupt those plans. But the Senate, as a, you know, as a more general matter, Democrats control the Senate. The House continues to hold hearings, including ridiculously destructive hearings on, uh, you know, impeaching Joe Biden um, and trying to obstruct justice by blocking Jack Smith and any of these other prosecutions of Donald Trump instead of doing the vital business of the day. And we're not using the Senate or seeing the Senate being used as a counterpoint here. Uh, it, uh, uh, it's just baffling to me. Um, you know, you can't, especially at this point in history, um, you, you can't ignore the weapons that you have at your disposal to try and uh, show and highlight the dysfunction, where it's coming from. And then begin to move forward and make progress to get us out of this uh, uh, ridiculous uh, dilemma. We have the same problem. It's not just Tommy Tuberville. Uh, the vile uh, and odious J.D. Vance is holding up uh, appointments in the Justice Department. That includes U.S. attorneys. You know, they uh, hit Democrats on crime while they uh, obstruct our ability to deal with crime. If uh, if we have a shutdown. The border patrol will be affected. All of their criticism of the open border, I mean, they're just making matters much worse. And you need the Senate to highlight these things. And it's not just for political advantage. It's to force positive action so you can actually help to solve the problems. So I, I just, uh, you know, it's baffling. And I don't think we have enough uh, of a spotlight shined on Schumer and other Senate Democrats, including uh, Dick Durbin, the chair of the Judiciary Committee. Um, we need a lot more done about uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, and I just don't see it. And I don't see, you know, we have the, the there's a strong possibility, even if Joe Biden wins re-election, Democrats recapture the House and we're going to get to the circus in the House in a minute. 
Um, if the Senate goes to the Republicans, which is still more likely than not, because uh, they just don't have very many vulnerable seats, uh, there'll be no more judges. Uh, executive uh, appointees are going to be harder to come by. We need to have the Senate in there just grinding away at judicial confirmations now so that you're protected and not leave those slots available for what might be many more years until there's a Republican who can fill them. Uh, I, it just, uh, you know, set the softness of senators wanting to have their downtime. And I understand you've got, you know, many of your own up for reelection. They want to be able to get back uh, home a little bit more. But right now you've got a priority and, and, you're not fulfilling your objectives or your responsibilities. Norm, you're pointing out very kind of accurately that if we think things are bad now, they could get heck of a lot worse very quickly in 24. And many of us are preparing. I don't know. I like to think I'm preparing for the worst. Um, but I'd like to, I'd like to shift to what is happening kind of in the house and I, I have talked to a couple of friends in the House, both on the Republican and uh, Democratic side. And they have said not like the caucus meetings apparently are just chaos, complete chaos, which isn't shocking to me. But between like, you know, not having a true caucus and also having like the lack of any central form of leadership, what are the options? And And do you understand, can you explain a little bit about this how do we add powers to pa who the heck is Patrick McHenry and how does he, how is he acting speaker in the first place and how can we add powers to what he's doing? Is that what you think might happen? Where do we go here? So um, back in 2001, after nine 11, I moved, uh, I very quickly um, realized that we had no protections in place if Congress got obliterated. Um, and uh, the Presidential Succession Act was inadequate, goes back to 1947. So I helped to create a Continuity of Government Commission, and we issued uh, uh, three reports on Congress, the courts, and the presidency. And the Congress recommendations were the most significant uh, and quite compelling. Um, and uh, we had two Republicans who were adamantly opposed to doing anything that we wanted to do. And they happened to be powerful ones. David Dreyer was chair of the Rules Committee. Jim Simpson Brenner was chair of the Judiciary Committee. And they blocked most of what we wanted to do, but they also didn't want to go down as people who would do nothing in the face of these threats. So one of the things they did do, which was borrowed from what a number of state legislatures had done during the Cold War, uh, uh, where they would have, uh, Wisconsin had done this as well, um, where legislators would have a list of successors in case uh, the Russians took them out, um, that you could pull the envelope and say, okay, if, if uh, this guy's dead, here's his first choice to replace him. So they put in place this rule with a temporary speaker if you had a vacancy at the top. Now, the the way the rule is written, it's a very limited rule. The expectation was that they would be able to get somebody in pretty quickly. But the intent was the continuity. 
that you wouldn't have a house completely paralyzed while you had a temporary speaker. Uh, so they can change this rule very easily. And I frankly believe that uh, the limitations on these powers, they're still meeting in committees. There's no reason why they can't bring bills to the floor, even if you don't have a permanent speaker in place. But they want to, uh, right now, we're talking about this now. You know, what uh, Kevin McCarthy had written on his envelope, his first choice was his very close friend and closest ally, Patrick McHenry, who's been around for 20 years, um, who came in as a firebrand, but is the chair of the banking committee. I've talked to a number of Democrats who basically say he's not a crazy guy. One of the things that distinguishes him compared to every other alternative that's been out there among the Republicans for Speaker is he did not vote that after January 6th uh, that the uh, election had been stolen. Um, but he is a placeholder right now. And uh, having said that, the first thing he did as a placeholder was a vile act, which no doubt was on the orders of Kevin McCarthy, which was to remove Nancy Pelosi from her little private hideaway office in the Capitol, which is a tradition that speakers uh, have given to former speakers. Um, while she was in California for Dianne Feinstein's funeral, told her he had to be out, she had to be out in 24 hours, then did the same thing to the office of the former majority leader, uh, Steny Hoyer. It was just petty acts. But, you know, he's still a fairly reasonable person. And the idea now is because they can't agree on anybody that they'll pump for 30 days, but let the House stay at least in a position where they can act. Because now if they don't, there's no emergency aid package for Israel. And that would be disastrous for the Republicans in the House. Underlying all of this is the reality that they can't agree on anybody and they can't find 217 votes for anybody. We're doing this on a Thursday morning early. They had scheduled another vote for Jim Jordan. It's not clear that that vote today will take place because by almost every account, Jordan is bleeding support, and it would be even more embarrassing for him on the third round that he can't even get the, two, the 199 votes that he got the last time. I should know. But doesn't he need, doesn't Patrick need, so this is where I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm either I'm wrong or doesn't he need some Democrats to support adding these powers? And is the only reason a Democrat would do that is simply for the sake of getting an aid package through? Or is, is it a bit of um, a Pandora's box and, or am I misinterpreting? I mean, do, doesn't he need some, don't, won't they need some Democrats oh, they, to get? Certainly. You know, the, the largest, I would say at this point, the largest Republican caucus in the House is the nihilist caucus. Uh, They're perfectly happy to go head towards a shutdown and keep uh, the government from doing much of anything. Uh, So you need Democratic votes. I think Democrats at this point would be, uh, most of them would be happy to give Patrick McHenry uh, the ability at least to bring things to the floor. I think what they would want in return is a guarantee that what comes to the floor includes aid for Ukraine um, uh, and in a package, you know, combined with Israel. 
Uh, one of the, uh, we know that Jim Jordan, who has opposed aid to Ukraine, he's part of the pro-Russian caucus, um, had been telling the uh, holdouts that he would bring a package to the floor. But the, uh, you know, the problem there even is the kind of package that Jim Jordan would bring to the floor would give a pittance to Ukraine while giving a lot to Israel and, you know, demand uh, that that be the uh, uh, agreement, which would not be acceptable. I think McHenry is likely to uh, agree to something like that. But, you know, Democrats would like to see the House in operation. And if it still means that Republicans can't agree on a speaker, better to have the ability to do something, uh, including maybe work towards getting an agreement on the spending amounts that Republicans had already agreed to on the debt ceiling that McCarthy reneged on um, before he uh, lost out. I think there's a tiny possibility, he doesn't particularly want it, that they could go through a month, not find anybody who's acceptable to 217 of them, and that we ended up with Patrick McHenry as speaker. Um, and that, among the outcomes, would be one of the least uh, uh, outcomes, given most of the other uh, possibilities. Uh, but, you know, it's all of this is a reflection of a reality that the Republicans aren't interested in governing. It's not a high priority for them. And that's why we are at this impasse. Yeah, I, I agree. This is, um, <laughs> not, I, I don't even have comments about uh, not high priority. It's, it's as if, it's as if the victory and, and the victory in this chaos is palpable when you hear kind of, you know, Matt Gates, others just look at their social media and kind of how like their reaction to, you know, we're, we're going to, it's being, postured as we're going to fight for like what we think is right. And we're not going to, you know, unlike that Kevin McCarthy, like this is the fight. It's not easy. We're going to do it. You know, it's this insane kind of, yeah, I, I, I have nothing. Um, so I will say this, we do, we haven't done the words mattered in a, in a while, but this caught my eye on Twitter or X, whatever it's called. Um, I'm going to read kind of, uh, this is the reading NBC News reporting. Jordan's 199 votes marked the first time in 100 years that the majority nominee got less than 200 votes. Last time, fun fact, in 1923, Frederick Gillett, Republican from Massachusetts, got 197 votes on the first ballot, took him eight more rounds of voting to eventually win. A reminder that to win, you need 217. Um, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and just uh, um, kind of you know, highlight some of the ones that broke ranks, meaning they were Republican members who ended up voting for someone, not Jim Jordan, um, only because I think that just I, Mike Kelly, who voted for John Boehner, you know, after supporting Scalise on the first ballot, this caught my eye. See if anybody I didn't mention caught your eye, um, Norm. Uh, Jake Elzey from Texas, who voted for Garcia. Like, I, I mean, some of these are just like, I was like, well, there, there's no sense in any of this. The ones that voted for McCarthy or Scalise, you know, yeah, okay, I could see the point you were making. Um, you know, Marionette Miller Meeks of Iowa voted for Granger after first voting for Jordan. Like, it's, it's just, it's just got to be. And then Pete Stauber, who voted for Bruce Westerman also after supporting Jordan on the first ballot. So, I mean, for me, those stood out for a lot of reasons, including 
what the hell? But then also the Republicans like Miller Meeks and, and Stauber and some others who voted for Jordan on the first ballot to then turn to support someone else on the second. What is, you know, maybe as we shift and we'll kind of get into some of what's unfolding in the members only section in, in the Gaza Strip at the hospital uh, there that was that was recently bombed. How what what the heck? Like, first of all, did, did anybody did anybody else's votes catch your eye, Norm? Anything significant? Anything to interpret out of that? But like Jim Jordan actually like like I mean it's it seems like in the big picture, right? Like Scalise was like, fine, I'm out of here. You know, Jim Jordan, he's just losing. And I don't even really kind of understand what, like what's happening. It's not you know not just the nihilist caucus. It's like the chaos caucus, nihilist caucus, and just blanket stupidity wrapped into one. I don't know how to I don't know how to describe these actions. So some of uh, the opposition from members of the Appropriations Committee who really want to uh, those are you know among those who you know, are proud of their work and they want to see their, their bills go through and they don't trust Jordan. But they're, I, I'm going to turn this in the other direction. Jim Jordan, defined by John Boehner as he left the speakership as a legislative terrorist. Jim Jordan, who didn't just vote that the election was stolen, had a long conversation with Donald Trump on the morning of January 6th, was an instigator of a violent insurrection. Jim Jordan, who has had at least six Ohio State wrestlers, and maybe more, who say that they directly discussed with him the sexual predator uh, who ended up destroying the lives of dozens of wrestlers, and Jordan did nothing about it, continued to cover it up, and let him continue his predations. That's the Jim Jordan we're talking about. And that uh, 200 Republicans supported him for speaker. The guy who defied a congressional subpoena, which means that he crapped all over his own institution, the least fit person for speaker, that tells you more about the Republican Party than the fact that he can't get to 217. Yeah, that's a good point. That, You're right. The other right. thing that struck right. me, Kavita, was that on the before the second ballot, he was put into the uh, nomination for speaker by Tom Cole of Oklahoma. Now, I've actually known Tom Cole for decades. Uh, I have very dear friends who went to Grinnell College in Iowa. And he was a Grinnell person. And I got to know him. Tom Cole was widely respected, uh, even among Democrats. As a thoughtful guy, an institutionalist, he's now the chair of the Rules Committee. He put Jim Jordan's name into uh, nomination as speaker, referred to him as a man of towering integrity. And I, I threw up a little bit in my mouth as I heard that. And to me, it's a reflection of where we've come, of what happens when you have a party that is a cult and that a Tom Cole would soil himself and soil his own institution is one of the more depressing elements of where we are. And, you know, you can look at this and with some glee, look at the farce of a party that's fighting uh, internally amongst itself and that has members coming out and saying we're a bunch of clowns. But the consequences for the country 
are just staggering that you're dealing with people, uh, 95% of whom would vote for a legislative terrorist to be the Speaker of the House, who at the same time, a pro-Russian guy who's then going to be a part of the Gang of Eight sharing our most sensitive secrets, uh, who has no interest in governing, who's the leader of the Nihilist Caucus, who is a reckless, uh, horrible human being. This is not a good thing. No. No, and I'm glad. I'm I'm glad you're you're right. It was irresponsible of me to actually only point out the chaos that's happening on the caucus without actually pointing a finger at the true chaos, which are the how the hell did this guy get 199 votes to begin with? That's that's uh, and and maybe that's a sad statement that that's where we're at. Like this is a sexual predator or someone who some sorry someone who con- endorses and condones sexual predators and also himself seems to have no problem, you know, up until I forget when Norm, you know, calling the 2020 election a hoax and just an incredible odious character as a speaker. So yeah, maybe in the big picture, a Patrick McHenry speaker is not a bad thing. I had, I had maybe thought we talked about this on the pod before that maybe there is some tilt of power where some Republicans with some semblance of humanity actually defect over to Hakeem and that Hakeem could become speaker. But I, I don't, I think that's a fuck. No, I think there is, uh, uh, I see a few possibilities here. One is that they meander around for a while, but then end up with uh, somebody who has not offended anybody in the caucus. That would be a Tom Emmer of Minnesota who's in leadership. Um, Kevin Hearn, who's the head of their largest formal group, the Republican Study Committee, which used to be the Conservative Caucus. Uh, The second possibility is that you do get a few Republicans who go to Hakeem not to make Hakeem speaker, but to reach an agreement where Democrats wouldn't vote for uh, somebody who would be more acceptable uh, to them, but would, uh, some of them would be absent, uh, and you'd get a few votes enough to put that person over the top with an agreement that they would bring up an aid package for Ukraine and Israel and would, uh, agree to the spending, uh, uh, limits for, uh, amounts for each category that had originally been agreed to in the debt ceiling bill to keep government moving along. Maybe also agree to change the rule at that point that uh, one person can, you know, call for a motion to vacate the chair, vacate the speakership. Maybe in an ideal world, get a permanent solution to the debt ceiling issue to keep it from being used as a a weapon and a hostage. Um, I think the possibility of that is uh, slim. And the main reason is these Republicans are basically cowards. Uh, one other thing we I should have m- mentioned before, but I think it's worth noting here, Kavita, there is a problem-solving caucus in the House that has equal numbers of Democrats and Republicans, I think close to 30 Republicans. The problem solvers, the overwhelming majority of them, voted for Jim Jordan. They're not there to solve problems. They're there to make it look like they're problem solvers because that plays well back home. And uh, 
you know, I think they're going to have a hard time otherwise uh, coming up with anybody who's able to get all the votes until they're so exhausted that maybe somebody coming out from nowhere, like a Jody Ar- Harrington or Arrington, um, you know, will just get the 217 votes because they just want to get over this. But that means you'd have a mediocrity uh, at best as speaker. And it's not like things, you know, the best we can hope for is that we can get aid for Ukraine and keep the government open. Even that is a less than 50-50 proposition. Nobody who comes in as speaker in the end, even if they're able to get 217 votes, is going to be able to count on the Republicans who will insist on doing legislation that is partisan and not bipartisan. You're still going to have a bunch of uh, bomb throwers and lunatics who will keep you from uh, being able to you know, act and do things in the public interest. Uh, this is not a party fit for governing. No, this is, that is, we're going to end on that statement because I can't top that statement. There is a, there is a hundred percent no way to underscore bold and outline that statement more profoundly than that. This is not a part for governing. Uh, we, I'm, I'm laughing because sometimes Norm, you just deliver the words that really matter. So on, on that note, I want to, I want to thank you, thank our listeners and, encourage people to try to keep pushing through and looking for facts where they can find them and questioning media is not not an unreasonable thing to do and probably highly recommended at this point in time and on the same token also hopefully we've delivered a little bit more insight to you and share this podcast if you will with your friends and you can also join as a member we're about to uh, talk in our members section around some of what's very small percentage of of attention to the issue, but uh, preview if we can uh, find a way to convince our colleague David Rothkopf to come and educate us. But want to thank our producer for this podcast, Riley Fessler, and our executive producer, Chris Cutmore. And next episode of Words Matter should be in and around your inbox October 26th. Take care. Welcome to our members only section of Words Matter. And in an in Norm, I think it's safe to say that we felt like we wanted to tackle for our broader listening community, uh, talking more thoughtfully about what's unfolding in the Middle East with one of our colleagues, if we can um, make sure that we get time with David Rothkopf, who, again, I'll reiterate for those who haven't read his really thoughtful columns probing this topic and the Daily Beast, and he's also been appearing on television, but follow his Twitter feed if you haven't already, but he's been very thoughtful, has a lot of experience in the Middle East and, and just is a personal source of trying to unfold fact versus fiction. Um, But I would say, Norm, we wanted to touch not just because it's an important issue, but it is, I think um, a reflection of like the chaos that the globe is in because we probably, you and I were probably watching as like the hospital blast, uh, the hospital blast which was thought to be an Israeli rocket in the Gaza Strip, um, which obviously any attack on a hospital is just odious and disgusting, but that was initially thought to be an Israeli rocket. And since then, um, kind of Israeli intelligence, United States government intelligence have come forward saying that it was not from an Israeli rocket and that it was from another uh, terrorist group. 
I think that what's clear, though, is questions still remain. Protests, people are angry. People, it's it's given, it, it's only unfortunately poured gasoline on both sides. But uh, tell tell me how you've kind of uh, watched the situation, Norm. And I do think that Biden is having to walk a very fine line. Rishi Sunak joined, joined Biden's comments this morning by kind of reinforcing support for Israel and kind of expressing desire for humanitarian aid. But kind of talk about, uh, Norm, how you have thought about the intelligence surrounding the hospital and if you read it as I do, that this unfortunately has poured gasoline on things and hasn't actually made, not that I wanted this to be an Israeli rocket by any means, that's not what I'm implying, but it's having this kind of answer, unfortunately has not led to what I, what I think the IDF and U S government want U S intelligence would hope that we put the blame where it is on terrorists. And um, yeah, so I'll stop there. Norm, your thoughts. So first, one small correction, Kavita. Israel doesn't fire rockets. This is important. They use bombs. These are jets going over Gaza and dropping bombs. And it's an ah, okay. important distinction for this reason. Um, and, you know, I will say it's so tough uh, to get accurate reports out of Gaza. We had a bunch of journalists who have been killed in all of this, but there aren't very many journalists there. And the journalists who are there uh, like an awful lot of people who end up speaking out, are completely intimidated by Hamas. If they say something that contradicts Hamas, uh, they're going to worry less about a bomb dropping on them than about being assassinated by Hamas. Uh, so, it, you know, it's a fog of war always, but this is even more of one. But what we know in the aftermath of what happened at or near the hospital is that uh, whatever occurred fell on a parking lot next to the hospital and then expanded from there. So it wasn't a, uh, anything dropped on the hospital directly. And when you, when you look at the footage uh, at the hospital and in the parking lot, it's consistent with a misfired rocket and not with a bomb being dropped. If you it drop definitely looked bomb, like a ro- not that I know what a rocket is, yeah. but it definitely... It seemed consistent with the rocket. So I think no. it's, um, I'll be honest, I didn't realize Israel didn't have no, rockets. No, Israel doesn't It wouldn't occur to me. The rockets come from the north in Lebanon, from Hezbollah, which are highly sophisticated, very powerful, and now can reach anywhere in Israel. And um, they've improved their technology, but Islamic Jihad, which is a closely affiliated group in uh, in Gaza with um, uh Hamas fires a lot of rockets. They're more sophisticated than they used to be. But what happens is you get a rocket which has a bunch of rocket fuel, an explosive uh, warhead, uh, and a motor that sends it in. Now, they, these are not rockets that you can target to a particular place. They just fire them into uh, Israel. But what we know is large numbers of them fail. They get up in the air, the, the, the motor dies, they fall right down. What happens with that is mostly it's this jet fuel and the debris that cause damage. If it's a, if it's a bomb, there's a big crater in the ground. Um, and what we saw here were burned cars, pockmarks, and some cars that were completely untouched. If 
a bomb drops in that area, there's going to be nothing left. So it's more consistent with a rocket that was fired from behind the hospital that fell. Now, and you know, we now and we also know that there's uh, other intelligence, including um, pictures that show the trajectory of what's coming from uh, Gaza towards Israel, what's coming in the other direction. And it showed that right around that time, there was a misfired rocket. We know that a footage that Al Jazeera had done, stamped at that time, shows it was a rocket. Now, is that 100% definitive? No. What Joe Biden said was that he also had data from our Defense Department that suggested it. So that's where we are. I think the... Uh, and. By the way, if you, you know, looking at those pictures of the parking lot, the hospital was damaged, but it wasn't leveled. And my guess is that the uh, estimates by the health authority in uh, Gaza, which is Hamas, of 500 dead probably is not accurate. Um, plenty dead, but not more close to that. Okay, put so on I'm gonna that. I'm gonna tell you I brought up I brought up the Al Jazeera website um, just because it's one of several again in the desire to kind of try to parse fact from fiction just having multiple sources to verify Al Jazeera still as of our time of recording is October nineteenth nine fifty two a.m. Eastern time still has here kind of what we know so far about the deadly strike on a Gaza hospital still has here. Palestinian officials say nearly 500 people were killed in an Israeli air raid on Al-Ali Arab hospital in Gaza. Um, it does mention that the site has not been updated. It was, you know, up to the, the story was posted on October 18th. Um, so it has not been updated, but I, I just, you know, Norm, it's it's very hard for just a regular person who doesn't have maybe, you know, time to kind of, par I would like to think I'm somewhat educated. One, I didn't even realize that Israel doesn't have rockets. And then two, I'll be honest, like, I had no reason to kind of question, I have a lot of reasons to question a lot of things. Usually when people say, oh, it's the health ministry or the health authority, I'll be honest, I usually don't question it because I feel like there's some sort of camaraderie and like having like health as your focus so how one what do you make of a pretty prominent news source like al jazeera kind of having that still be their leading headline and where where are you looking to to find kind of your best sources maybe that's a good way to shift and we can kind of end there because i have to be honest with you i I'm a little dumbfounded. And I think part of it is because of what we talked about at the top of our kind of wider community wide pod, where the level of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia just in the United States alone is not like it's terrifying to me and, and not to only comment on under, like what has happened in the Middle East for decades, which I can't even imagine, which is why we want to have our colleagues who um, study that area speak on our pod. Where do we, how do I find information? What do I make out of Al Jazeera, which I think is actually a pretty good news source? Like, what, what am I supposed to make out of that? Where do listeners go for trying to find information? It's very difficult. And here I will turn to our own media as well. You know, the initial, uh, I, will, I will give Israel uh, credit in this small sense that um, 
whoops, hold on one second, um, that uh, the IDF, uh, the Israeli Defense Force, did not immediately deny that they had uh, had any involvement here. They said, uh, we're going to find out what happened. Um, but our news sources, our domestic sources, the New York Times, our cable news networks, other major sources immediately went with the story emerging from the uh, health ministry, which is Hamas. And, you know, you're, you, you, we should be able to rely on those officials. But if any official in the health ministry had said, you know what, we didn't, uh, this was our own people, uh, it was a mistake, uh, that would be their end. So the idea that immediately the news stories that went out, the headline in the New York Times, uh, Israelis bomb hospital, 500 dead. And the, you know, the caveat was Palestinians say, it wasn't Palestinians who said that, it was Hamas who said it. But all of that created an immediate image that continues to persist. And what we're seeing now is violent demonstrations at American embassies and consulates in the region and elsewhere. Um, we have an Arab street that is now convinced that Israel deliberately bombed a hospital, killing 500 people, including patients, doctors, and others. And it, uh, this story immediately caused uh, King Abdullah in Jordan, um, uh, Sisi in uh, Egypt, and starting with Abbas in the Palestinian Authority, to cancel their meeting with Biden uh, in his trip to the Middle East. The consequences are significant. And to me, it's such a dark stain on our media. What the story should have been, uh, hospital area bombed, uh, source of it unclear. Um, or you make a definitive statement, you want to have some sense of what's going on. And it's not that you're going to rely on simply what the Israelis say. And we've seen a lot of commentary, and I think it's appropriate, that we had a journalist murdered with a sniper bullet uh, the last time we had, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of mini uprising. The Israelis denied for a long time that they had anything to do with it. They said it had come from uh, uh, people... Uh, 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 on the other side before it became clear that it was an Israeli bullet that did it. So it's not like you take every uh, statement as fact. Uh, as I said, to their credit, they held off for a while. They wanted to come out with definitive information. That also included the signal intelligence that they captured a couple of people from Hamas saying, oops, it looks like an Islamic Jihad rocket fell near the hospital. Um, so we now know more, but you can't immediately accept the assertions of a party in a, a conflict like this without understanding what the consequences are if you report it that way. And what depresses me as much as anything, and this gets to that larger question of the both sides journalism, the continuing refusal to accept that we have one party that is not part uh, a traditional party. Um, that uh, 
the fiction that there are still a bunch of moderates. They continue to put this uh, Trumpist crazy Nancy Mace on as their token moderate in the cable news. Uh, but with all of that, why can't we have a mainstream media with enormous power doing some self-reflection and saying, you know, maybe we better rethink the way we do things. And I just see no feedback mechanism here. And I'm not sure that even this incident uh, with such significant consequences, people can die as a result of sloppy journalism. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, literally death is on, like people's lives are on the line. This is, um, well, I'm, uh, I'm grateful you educated me. It, you always do, but I, I'm embarrassed that there are some things that even I overlooked. And, and by the way, walking into this, I wasn't kind of, I'll be honest, Norm, I still am in this boat of here's what the kind of U.S. and Israeli intelligence are telling us. All I know right now is that the scene is chaos. I, I, I can't comment on whether I believe 500 people or five people, but any loss of life to me is tragic, as I know it is to you. And that it's chaos. It is my, my opening kind of thoughts of gasoline on the fire is still kind of my feeling. And I yet you've informed me in a way that I'm now trying to process like, how can, how can we offer listeners? And maybe this is where we can go when, when we return on the pod next week, we'll try to kind of give listeners like multiple sources of where you and I go for our information and, Hopefully, also get our colleague David to to add to that. But it's um, I what I'll what I'll close in saying is that I, I don't. I'm going to offer the doctor's prescription here. It is actually okay to walk away from the media at, at moments and probably frequently, because I think some of what helps us process is actually not having that input. Because I think that the destruction of of life is obviously so visceral and something that's palpable that you don't need the media to show it to you in order to see it to kind of understand like the pain and tragedy that's unfolding so people walking away it's not a bad thing that includes you know even as you listen to this pod put put the pod down and walk away and have kind of some time for self-reflection and silence because i know that's normal i know that's part of what you and i do regularly just stay just to stay sane and that was even before what's unfolded in the last couple of weeks has happened. So with that, I want to thank our members. Thank you, Norm. And we'll talk to you next time.